0: Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host,
1: Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. This is episode 273. So I finally finished that fan controller hack. Um, it might be my fastest turnaround for a project on the podcast in a long, long time. Whoa. <laughs> With, uh, remind us all what, uh, what that project was. So... The uh, I'm working on my Jeep and I have an electric fan and the controller that I bought for that electric fan uh, from a company called Delta PAG. Um, the fan controller, the override signal was an active low signal line instead of an active high. Most signals in a, in a car are active high. Um, I don't know why it's an active low, but for, for this controller, but it is. Um, so I needed to invert the signal and we had a podcast episode like four or five episodes ago where we talked about different ways you, we could do that. Um, most people in automotive, they just use like a big chunky relay cause it, everyone's just got automotive relays, you know, lying around. Um, when you're doing this, my kind of stuff, like working on your car, you have automotive relays. Um, and so you would use that, the invert the signal from the 12 volt high to be a, 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 a uh, ground active um, signal. Um, And then I was like, okay, what about if we opened it up, open up the controller instead and like put in our own circuitry to like invert the signal on the low level side. Um, Thought about doing it that way. Um, And then there was also like the idea of like, hey, let's open it up and like rewrite the firmware to be like active low or active high. I mean, but upon opening it up, uh, we found that the microcontroller is a 8051 core like Chinese. Like, like you Google it, to Google that part number, it's gonna be like that podcast episode and like the, the Chinese data sheet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the only two hits you get. <laughs> and uh and so I, I decided to go the in the like the middle route, right? Which is basically cut the trace inside the, the unit and then uh, I used a MOSFET style inverter, which is you know, an end channel MOSFET pull down resistor and then a in series resistor to kind of like protect the gate of the MOSFET a bit. And then I threw in a, a, a clamping diode at like clamps at like 16 volts just in case uh, there's a spike. Um, and so I, I hacked it. And, and if you're on the stream, because we're live streaming, you can see this. Oh no. Look at that. It's actually it's
0: actually a pretty uh, pretty attractive little hack there. Yeah. Wait, did you get a PCB made for the hack?
1: I made a PCB for no. it. No. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it looks good. That looks yeah that looks really good. Now that's
0: okay. So there's there's different levels of hacks, right? So like no 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 seriously, like this goes this goes back to like our different types of soldering. There's like Manhattan style, there's um oh. Thunder Ohm style and then there's yeah, Cthulhu Thunder-ohm. style. Uh, and and I think so yours still involves wires. So it's still a hack. But it's like a yes, really yeah. it's
1: like a high level hack because you went through all the trouble <laughs> of making a PCB. <laughs> My hacks have monocles. Yeah. Did did you did you like super glue that down to the board? Yep, that's super glued down. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so the, the PCB, the 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 extra PCB is super glued down and then all the wires that I bonded are hot glued down. Nice. Yeah. And th- th- uh, that's yeah, able- okay, so that is a mod that's intended to be permanent or I have. Yeah, it's 100% it going to be per- like I'm going to put this co- this backing on the controller and I'm never going to open it up ever again. <laughs> nice. So, if anyone out there has a <laughs> like I I bet you zero people who listen to this podcast have a Delta pag motor uh, fan controller that they want to invert their active low signal for the auxiliary override. If you do, though, you can go download my PCB and and, and make that little board. It's up on GitHub right now?
0: Yeah. You know, okay. It's there. But it's really nice that you did that because there might be that one guy 20 years down the road, and he's searching on new Google or whatever they call it. New Google. New Google. and you Google. Yeah,
1: and you Google.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he's got this vintage car that has that little box in it, and um, finds just that podcast, and there you go,
1: and then has to way back machine your GitHub. Yeah, but it's amazing that or someone has another controller and it has an active load and they need a little signal, so that's cute. I like it. Yeah, I'm just glad it worked like the first try. Like I. I seriously like soldered it up right before this podcast.
0: <laughs> you used a, what, a BSS 170?
1: 138.
0: 138,
1: okay. Yeah, just a, that's actually the house part number at MacroFab for end channel MOSFETs for a SOT 23 package. It's it's so. about as jelly bean as you get for MOSFETs. As, as jelly bean as you can get. I think the only big problem with it is I think it's only got like a 18 volt gate to source. But uh, but what what's the signal levels you're sending it? Oh, it's five and twelve. Not a big deal. I'm talking about if it sees a spike on the automotive line. Ah, uh, yes, right. Yeah, that gate. That's why I put that little. I put a little 100 ohm resistor in series, just to be like, hey, if there's any spikes, at least that resistor is going to take all the energy out of it. So, you know, uh, that's something. I and I there's do a diode more- there to protect it too. Right. Yeah.
0: For, for any MOSFET. That is in any of my circuits. I just by default, like it's almost like it's almost like I'm placing one component, but anytime I place a MOSFET, there's always a resistor that just goes there, um, it, like I don't even consider
1: it. Um, yeah, it, it really depends, though. Um, like if you have a MOSFET, because I'm researching MOSFET drivers, mm-hmm. and you don't want a, a resistor between the driver and the MOSFET, of course. But you're at that point, you're. Well, you have a low
0: impedance driver that can actually hit the capacitance of the gate.
1: Yeah, and a lot of more constant current driven too instead of a uh, voltage driven uh, line. You wouldn't want to put a resistor there. Yeah, <laughs> that's yes. the whole thing about MOSFETs is
0: they end up they they end up taking a, a particular amount of charge to actually turn on. Uh, so yeah, it, yeah. it effectively appears like a, somewhat of a capacitor. So you have to have enough oomph to actually drive it. And if you're trying to do something really fast and switch something, your driver has to be able to handle that uh, that drive current fast enough mm-hmm. but in your application you're just switching something and you don't want it to ever switch when it shouldn't switch and so that well that and i that.
1: just want to protect that gate as a from spikes and and other emf sources and have a little snubber resistor there to kind of eat up, up up the energy yeah is fine because that's the thing it's like the main reason why you w- wouldn't want to put a resistor there is if you are if you need to switch that, res- that, that MOSFET really quickly on and off, like you do in a PWM circuit, um, or like an H controlling bridge the vo- or, uh, controlling or, or a a signal switch that mode way. power supply
0: or something, anything like that.
1: Exactly. Anything that, cause if, cause what you're doing is you're basically increasing the rise time of that MOSFET gate with that resistor. Most time that that's, if you're just going from a zero or on off zero to one and your your duty cycles, you know, 100%, right? Cuz it's it's always on. Full zero, full one. Yeah. Um and you you kind of want to do that to protect that that gate front end. But if you're actually PWMing it, you usually don't want to do that or use a really small value or you actually have a MOSFET driver. Um Interesting story about this is a story that Chris Kraft told me, who was on the podcast long, long time ago. We should get him back on, uh, speaking of that. But um, he, was, he was the person who was really big into 3D printing. It was kind of like, uh, did a lot of the hobby stuff back when it was first starting as well. Like the hobby 3D printing, not when 3D printing first started. Um, but uh, there was a problem with, I can't remember what controller um, there was a problem with, but... Uh, it was like when they first started doing bed heating in um, hobby level 3D printers. So what for people who don't know what th- about 3D printing, um, you want your bed of your basically the, the material that you're, you're printing on. You want that to be heated. And so it prevents your your print from being warped basically and helps adhesion and a bunch of other stuff. Anyways, the the MOSFET kept burning up on the boards on these controller boards and they could no one could figure out why and and people were using the mosfet to drive another mosfet board that was like a bigger mosfet it's kind of like that arduino mentality of just like adding another arduino (laughs) um and uh basically (laughs) what ended up happening though was that that mosfet the original mosfet was plenty big enough to handle the current of the bed But they were driving it at a frequency that that basically that MOSFET could never get into full saturation. It was always in that middle zone where it was basically acting like an analog switch, right? It's only partially on. And so it's just superheating because it's just it has resistance across of it across it. And uh, they just dialed that frequency down the PWM and started working fine.
0: You know, uh, so so one other thing about MOSFETs and that little resistor on there. So, like, the gate of a MOSFET is mega, mega high impedance. I mean, it's it's effectively glass, right, on the inside, uh, the the mm-hmm. gate of that. So, you have a huge impedance, and so any parasitics that connect to that, any any parasitic capacitance due to your PCB or wires or inductance of the wire, like, that tends to um, aid in oscillation. And when a MOSFET oscillates, it doesn't oscillate at low frequency. It tends to oscillate really, really high. And in fact, a lot of times it oscillates well past what your circuit is wanting to uh, operate at. And you don't even detect it. You don't even see it on your scopes or anything like that. But that MOSFET sits there and just generates a bunch of heat, and that can actually damage itself. Adding a little bit of resistance to the gate line, first of all, it basically cuts your trace width because if you place that resistor very close to the uh the pin, you're effectively swamping out the impedance. So no matter what with any MOSFET unless you're instructed not to by like a driver IC or something like that, it's a good idea to just put some impedance in line with the gate of a MOSFET. Even if it's just a few ohms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think rule of thumb is just start with a hundred to one K, somewhere in that range. And yep. if if that's if if that's making your circuit run too slow, then maybe you have the wrong MOSFET chosen, you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but again, that's what we did. Uh, that was the only thing we simulated on Pinatar. Um, was we is actually I went I took a, a week of vacation off, this is a couple years ago, and then stayed in Steven's basement and designed the Pinatar board. <laughs> yeah,
0: hey, that's a great that's honestly that's a great way to do design where you take a vacation and that's like it. You're away from everything else. And like, you yes. can just focus.
1: Yeah. Drank a lot of beer, worked on the pinotard board. And then I'm like, huh, I wonder, uh, like the only, the really thing it was, like I was using a completely new MOSFET basically that had completely different gates uh, or gate characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was using a completely different kind of driver circuit. And I'm like, Hey, let's simulate this. And we simulated it. And it was like, yeah, that looks fine. <laughs> and built it I think was we fine. actually found the model for it and imported it. Um, yeah, yeah. Everything we were able to import and had proper models for. Right, right. So.
0: Although the more and more that I simulate things, the less and less I rely on simulation. Uh, well, in other words, like I use simulation to um, uh, simulate concepts, and a lot less mm-hmm. simulate like how is this going to happen on this edge case. Like the simulation is not going to work for that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, that's why I want to know is like, okay, if I set it up with a 100 ohm resistor, or like, we basically we calculated what that resistor ideally should be. Mm-hmm. And it was actually really close to 100. I think it ended up being like, it was like 80 something ohms. We're like, yeah, 100's fine.
0: <laughs> well, you were trying to <laughs> limit um,
1: uh, current output because your driver yep. chip had a maximum current output. We weren't driving them from a driver chip. We're driving them from a, a 74HC595 uh, shift register, which has 20 milliamps max output. And so, yeah, we put a basically we calculated what the instantaneous, you know, turn on would uh, current would have been. And basically then, because like we, at first we did zero and it was like, it goes to infinity, right? <laughs> on turn on. <laughs> current goes to infinity. We're like, well, hap- well, in real life, it's not infinity, right? But it's a lot. And that could damage the the drivers off that shift register over time. And so we just kept basically increasing the resistance value until the the peak was under twenty milliamps. And once we hit that, it was like, okay, that was good. And I think it was like eighty something we got. And then we're like, okay, let's just use a hundred because I'm using hundred elsewhere on the board.
0: Right. It's it's you sacrifice a little bit of speed for some current limiting. Uh yeah. and it's and it's not like traditional current limiting. It's current limiting because like the gate has to be filled with charge basically. So right. you're just yeah. you're making sure that it wouldn't ever go above 20 milliamps out of the pin uh because yes. of a drive
1: signal. Yep, yeah, because of the drive. Yep. Yeah. So. so. and speaking of the pinator, it is now in production. What? Woohoo. Finally. So. Congratulations. Finally, yes. That probably feels a couple feels years good. later, finally in production. Um,
0: and um are you able to divulge what the production quantity is? Uh
1: over 250 units. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Um uh, so now now I gotta do the other side, which is like putting together a website with all the documentation <laughs> and stuff. Marketing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not really I'm marketing to OEMs, so it's uh not really too big of a mar- it's not like I'm like marketing like uh hobbyists and stuff. So it's a little bit easier because there's only like I can count on my hand like how many pinball manufacturers there are still in America. Yeah, um, probably in the world yeah. too. Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. So, if a hobbyist did want one, uh, yeah, I will sell them. Yes, yes. I'm just not going to market to hobbyists or anything like that. Directly. Right. The main goal isn't to sell them in singles, but you will Correct. if There's, somebody asks for one. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yes. Because because how do you? Design. If you're going to go into production with a pinball machine, you need one just to at least you know start testing stuff and putting together your first machine. So, okay,
0: yeah. I got a question. That's a that's a total tangent, but it's still some somewhat related, I guess. Okay, what is the future of pinball? And in, in other words, like, is pinball seeing like technological advances, or is it all just the same stuff oh, man. rehashed this is, with this is an different awesome question? Yeah, like, okay. is, is, it, is it just okay. the same okay. stuff with different mechs?
1: So. Wind back the time to the year 1999 (laughs) Williams and Bally. Pinball division is not doing so hot in the late 90s. Actually, the pinball machines they were designing and making are some of the best that ever made, like the themes, the gameplay, the quality of the pinball machines were like some of the best. But pinball was on the on the way out. They just weren't making a lot of games. just the whole coin op scene was changing and so Williams and Bally went to the pinball division and said we need something different to turn this department around and they came out with the pinball 2000 platform and so I don't know if you've ever seen it but it's the like revenge is revenge from the attack attack from Mars attack from Mars is like the Williams original like a regular pinball machine but I think it's like revenge of the attack from Mars or something like that but uh, and then they made um, Star Wars episode one because that had just come out. And then there was a unreleased game with like wizards or something like that. But what they did was they did holograms on the pinball on the play field. And how they did that was above the cabinet. So the cabinet, instead of just having a typical like 90 degree head box on the back, it, it the head box went back up and then over the the play field. And there was a CRT monitor in there that would display downwards. And then the glass was a special glass with a special coating on it that would reflect what was on the CRT. And so with some, you know, math by, you know, stretching and skewing the image, they can make it look like there's a hologram on the play field. And so you could do crazy stuff like, um, you could change what targets look like and what the play field, uh, toys look like and the by the way the Star Wars one looks really awesome um, I don't think they play really well they definitely look really cool and they actually sold really well and then Williams Valley just pulled the plug anyways on all of it um, basically I think the I think the 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 brass of, of Williams and Valley were going to pull the plug anyways Unless it was like amazing. like So that, that was like art. kind of like a hoorah at the very end. Yeah, it was kind of like a hoorah. Um, so that was then. No one pushed that platform really any further. Because um, we're still doing traditional pinball machines still. Um, in terms of tech, I don't know if there's been a couple attempts of like pushing like the tech in pinball. Um, like we now have full color. HD, you know, high uh, uh, HD graphics on, on displays. Um, But you still have companies that will still come out with like dot matrix stuff, but it's on like an LCD. Uh, Most of the advances are in lowering the cost, not in like the making the experience more high tech. Cause I don't think most pinball players are looking for that experience. They're not looking for the net, like, like there's VR pinball and there's like virtual pinball and you can do technically anything in that space and but people are still gravitating towards they want something like physical pinball machine. Yeah. So I don't know if there's going to be any crazy advances in terms of like and in, in that space because I don't think people are really looking for that.
0: Well, there's got to be machines out there. Like, this shows my ignorance. They've probably been around for a while, but there's got to be machines out there where, like, it's just a cabinet with a big, flat
1: display in it, and it just loads up a game. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's it, virtual pinball.
0: Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it's got... It looks like just a normal pinball cabinet, and but it's got a screen instead, and... But it's not so ka chunk chunk Like, I think there's there's yeah. some
0: magic behind that, for sure.
1: Yeah, and there's actually... even there. This is how crazy the virtual pinball stuff is. It's actually really nice. Like, you can kind of trick your brain into thinking it's a real pinball machine because they have head tracking now. And so it'll track your head and then it'll move the play field. And so it looks like the, there's an actual depth. Oh, it's like it has depth to it. Yeah. It's actually amazing that tech. Wow. Um, but again, like, people, I know there's some people that really like it. So I'm not going and to, and I've actually, played it quite a bit it's just for me it's not for me i want physical play field and i want a you know steel ball and yeah so as as for like tech advancement most of that at least in the physical pinball world is mostly in making stuff less expensive and more high fidelity in terms of music and graphics on the screen yeah because because it seems like okay
0: the tech behind th- what's actually physically happening on the play field I'm sure there's new ideas that can be spun up but at the end of the day it's like blinking light it's like ramp it's like door it's like things that hit the ball like those are all yeah. like simple concepts that uh, there's there's not a whole lot
1: specifically new there. there's just different flavors of it right there are I mean most games, have different mechs in them too. So that's where the innovation comes in is like moving the ball around a different way a different a different kind of mechanism that's like custom to that machine. It's not and you most of the time it's not just a skin over it either. It's an actual it's a different you know mech altogether.
0: You know, maybe I've seen this or maybe I've heard of it. But what what comes to mind, in fact, I think maybe you told me about this, but regardless the idea that the play field could be on like a cylinder that turns such that or, or think of think of maybe easier. Maybe think of it on like a prism uh, yeah, such that yeah. it has three play fields and you can play on one and then it rotates and you have a whole brand new play field on the inside and then it could rotate again and you'd have to like access different things and it would spin and turn into a completely different field. That would be tight.
1: I don't know if anyone's actually pro type before that. It's just only thing that comes to my mind is how freaking heavy that would be. It would be heavy, and it would just be
0: three... Like, why would you have that if you could just have three pinball machines next to each other? <laughs> right.
1: Oh, you're talking about... Oh, like Inside the cabinet, the
0: entire play field... So it's, it's a different
1: game. Yeah, so there's a couple... No, I'm not uh, talking platform. about a different game.
0: I'm talking about you have to play one and unlock the next one. Oh. Go into it. So
1: there's a... There is a pinball machine called. Uh, man, th- th- this is the amazing thing about this podcast is this is not even our main topic.
0: Oh, not at all. <laughs> I told you it was a tangent.
1: <laughs> yeah, but um, so going back to the tangent is there's a pinball machine called Bride of Pinbots. Because, of course, there's there a is. there's a there's a machine called PinBot, which is like a robot and then there's a mi- machine called Bride of Pinbot, and on that. And so it's like a sequel, I guess. Um, and on that machine, it's got a a um, upper playfield that does exactly what you're talking about. Oh,
0: it'll rotate. Right. It has
1: different faces of the of the bride.
0: Maybe I was thinking that because you told me
1: about that at one point
0: in time. Yeah, it could have been. What about a cylinder? that actively rotates as you play so if you shoot like diagonally the whole field rotates with the
1: speed of the ball yeah there was a uh there was a i can't remember the pinball machine but it's got like it's a similar concept you think about but like inverted so instead of like a flat play field it's like like a molded injection molded clear plastic like valley kind of thing Hmm. it's not fun to play (laughs) It just so it just feels so unpredictable when you hit the ball.
0: Okay, how how about this? This is this is another good one. You can't Orbiter see one, it. is that it, DJ? Was it I think that's what it is. Orbiter Okay, how about this? It's a conveyor belt, such that as you shoot the ball and it goes towards the top, the conveyor moves down. So you can like scroll oh. towards like higher levels. But then if the ball falls, it scrolls back down, conveyor belt style.
1: And there was another one. Um, now we're just going down the list of really weird, like non-conventional play fields. <laughs> um, pinball circus, I think is what's called. And it's like a vertical pinball machine. Oh, like Plinko kind of, but you, but Plinko goes from the top down and you can't really interact with it. This is like you're shooting upwards and like going through like mechs going upwards. But like, there's a traditional play field, like normally too. It's it's really weird. I've actually never played one. I've only seen pictures. It's
0: super tangent. We're going on another tangent here. There's some really great YouTube videos about the math behind plinko and the fact that every space on plinko is a uh, if you if you drop enough pucks, it becomes a uh, normal distribution. Gaussian curve. Yeah, yeah, Gaussian curve. It's a normal distribution. So if if you ever go play plinko anywhere. And you want to hit a particular number. The best possible place to drop your puck is directly over that number because it has the highest, um, what's it called, uh, uh, probability of
1: dropping in that. So, because that's because when it hits a pin, in theory, it's 50-50 whatever way it drops. Correct. And then the next pin's fifty-fifty, whatever way. Yeah, I, I see. So, what you're so saying. if you look at the very, like, if if
0: if you put it. If you look at the very edges of distribution, it would have to be 50, 50, 50, 50, like all the way down to reach the edges. Yeah. But it has the highest probability of constantly being basically zigzagging back and forth to the one you want. So if there's like a thousand
1: bucks right in the middle, put it right in the middle, and there's a higher likelihood you're there. So so DJ027X in chat says, Yeah, Orbiter One has the concave playfield with spinny pop. Like it's got like an injection molded, like plastic. Basin almost, and wildly regarded as the worst pin ever. It is <laughs> not a lot of fun to play because it just feels so random. Um, and that's like the exact opposite of what you want. You want the, your player to feel like they are in control of of the ball. You know? Okay. I I think that's.
0: Oh, I'm I'm looking at it right now. It looks like the play field is melted. Like it. It, it looks be. like. Oh, because I mean, I mean, it just has like I don't know. It yeah, looks, it's just wavy wavy almost like a kind of like a minefield you know that's been exploded i don't know
1: that's a weird I, I view aspect. it as like a martian landscape i think that's actually what's supposed to look like got it you know okay and 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 so the whole thing i was going at there for a second was that um me
0: being just like the most pinball i've ever played is parker's two games
1: uh kind of thing <laughs> uh pinball, but you got a very that's a very interesting selection there too because one that's super hard and one that's like
0: a, at least, uh, it has uh, what it, it's nice to newbies,
1: yeah. But like both of them are regarded as some of the best shooting games of all time, as oh, well. Okay,
0: the, space shuttle and Congo, right?
1: Yeah, so space shuttle was a, a, which came out in '84. Um, I think it's like the number one sold pinball machine a, as well. Like they made more space shuttles than like any other play f- machine ever. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. And then Congo, which is a B game because no one really wants it. Because th- what sells pinball machines is theme. Theme one. And the movie was terrible. Yeah. And the mo- well, well, everyone thought that was going to be the big new game because who wrote it? The people who uh, the person who did Jurassic Park. I can't remember his name, but Congo was going to be the next big thing and no. didn't happen. <laughs> no <laughs> um, and so that play that game, most of them, most Congos got turned into other games. Um, but it's a really and that was from the era of like medieval madness and uh, attack from Mars um from Williams. And so it's actually a really well shooting game. It's put together well um, the rule set is a little basic because basically what happened I think is, they found out the movie wasn't going to be good. And so they kind of just stopped working on the code. So there's not a lot of depth to the code, but it shoots really well. And that's the staying power for that game. And and that's fun, right? Yeah. It's a lot of fun because the shots are, there's some challenging shots there's some easy shots, but when you hit the shots, it feels good. And it makes you feel like you're in control of the game. I, so, so, okay. A game
0: that is, that shoots well, in my opinion, seems like it would be a great party game where you get a few people together you get some beers and you f- you play against each other but a game that's really deep and has a lot of extension to the code seems like it would be really great for one person to play and like try correct. to surmount everything
1: correct correct correct, correct. Yeah. yeah so you see a, a, the big thing nowadays cuz especially since bar uh, like bars don't really have pinball machines or anything i mean there's some bars that do yes but most bars don't have pinball machines cuz no one cares anymore and so most games now are really deep in code because the people who are buying them are putting them in their man cave. Got and they it. typically don't have, you know, 40 people showing up to a party. It's just them in their man cave, you know, they drinking their, their megalo Ultra, play a game for a bit. Yeah. playing a game.
0: Well, okay. And, and so, sorry. Back to the reason I even brought that up. The whole Orbiter 1 game feeling random Pinball to me, in a lot of ways, feels random because I don't have much experience with it. So, like my, whenever I play it, the whole goal is to just stay alive. Yeah, uh, and that's so, a good tactic, though. But I think that's everyone's tactic in in in, in an experience. I, when I first go to
1: a, new, a machine I've never played before, that's my tactic is just stay alive. Yeah. So yeah, space shuttle is a really fun game. It's just brutal because that's from that era. It's tough. uh, It's from that era of pinball where like people were pumping uh, coins into into machines. And so the less the ball time was, the more quarters you get. And so that game eats your would eat your quarters. Whereas Congo is from the era of like they wanted people to feel good when you're playing it. And so ball time's a little bit longer. There's easier shots. It doesn't drain as harsh. So. yeah Congo' is a very good introductory game where space shuttle is like you know playing on on ultra nightmare so. <laughs> is there a doom pinball machine um I don't think so oh man, that would be legit I don't think there is one, but like
0: original doom
1: oh like eight bit yeah oh so yeah. yep anyways, back on to pinatar um <laughs> So, you know, we've been talking about these supply chain issues. I have one component that has supply chain issues, and it's not what you would think. Okay. It is the JST locking connector I'm using for the RGB lights. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's buying JST out? I bought the world supplier this part right now. (laughs) Did you really? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, that's yeah. So I have like the world supply. I still don't have. I have enough for like the build, the Pentators don't have enough to build all the RGB lights yet. I have enough to get started, but you know, what are you going to do?
0: I'm I'm working with some, some clients right now that are a little bit new to um, contract manufacturing. Um, They've done their first production run and it went successful and, and everything was good. We, we had a post mortem and we, we discussed uh, not post mortem. Whatever we after the after the first run we discussed everything yeah. and and now they're they're ready to go for uh, round number two, and they're running into part shortages, and they're like, but the first run is it went well and it was like, well things are different now. Welcome to production. Welcome yeah. to manufacturing electronics. You know, <laughs> Or
1: manufacturing anything really. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's it's always fun and it's always easy. That's what I I, I tell them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, um, I'm not too worried about it, mainly because I have enough to get going, and um, the lead times don't look that bad. It's only a couple months. But, yeah, I, I basically bought everything I could find of this part.
0: Just out of curiosity, are we talking about four digits, five digits? Of what? Quantity, Quantity of, of those connectors?
1: I bought four digits worth. Oh, okay. Cool. So, I need I need... Uh, six digits worth. <laughs> <laughs> so you got some. No, no. Is that right? I need five digits worth. Okay. I got about, I got about a little over a third of what I need. Okay. so
0: well, It's not too bad. I mean, you're, you, the demand for them isn't particularly high at the moment.
1: I, I think what it is, is it's the locking style which actually not a lot of people use that most people just use the kind of like friction fit style. Um, I actually don't like the friction fit because one, uh, it takes a lot of force to remove those and where we're using them is on all the RGB lights, which are only, you know, attached with, I actually have one right here. They're only attached with one screw. And so if you're yanking on that cable, you don't want a you, diving. in. You're board just going to flex this, this knot out of this thing. And yeah. so you have the locking. And so when you move the tab, it just freely pops out. Yeah. yeah. And so there's, it's a, there's low yeah. insertion force basically. Um, so I don't think a lot of them, cause I can just go and buy the non locking right now. Like there's like, there's six digits worth of those in stock everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't think they just don't make a lot of these. And so and then I stroll up and like, I need, you know, 25,000 of these. And everyone's just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. they're probably going to have to sp- basically have bought all what they had and they're spooling up a, a lot, a, not a line, but spooling up a, a run of them eventually.
0: Well, yeah, you, you'll buy out whatever that run is. Probably. So we're uh 39 minutes into this episode and we're getting into I guess what you could potentially call main topic uh, I don't know if we really have those.
1: No, this is we talked about pinball was the main topic.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> effectively by this point. Well, and and I I so I want to talk about thermal management a little bit. Uh, mainly because I've run into that this week and I was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool. That that would be kind of fun." And I don't think we've talked about Thermal management a whole lot on the podcast, uh, not a ton. I mean, uh, to, to some degree, actually, we've probably talked about it in, in terms of the SSPS uh, a, a bit, right? Because that thing a had bit. some monster thermal management. I
1: uh, well, we did a little bit, and we've talked about um, using like through hole vias to and uh, solder to kind of. Uh, Channel heat away from your component. Yeah, but yeah, not not. We haven't had a in-depth discussion. I guess is a good way. Well,
0: and this isn't necessarily going to be an in-depth discussion, but this will be some some things that I'm doing right now that um, are related to it. Effectively, so if you uh, if you're part of our Slack channel and you look in the the uh, MEP channel in there, you see I've been posting a bunch of pictures of a project I'm working on. Uh, you know what's just funny? Uh, let me let me tangent just for a quick second. Parker said earlier, you know, th- like that little uh, uh, box that you you worked on was one of the fastest projects you've ever cranked out. Did on the podcast? I'm I'm literally working on the longest project that I've ever had. This project, people are gonna laugh at this. You know the rule of thumb in general with like electrolytic capacitors is if they're over a decade old, then you should start to consider replacing them i have a project that is so old that before i even finished it i've decided to recap it <laughs> because the boards <laughs> have just they've sat for over a decade swear to god i started this project and you haven't even fired them up yet yeah yeah haven't even fired them up and i just pulled them off and replaced all of them
1: this is also why you don't buy electrolytic capacitors though from like surplus stores oh yeah you have no clue they do have date codes on them I think the last time I went to one, like the date code was like from like the (laughs) eighties. Yeah. So I actually
0: inherited one time, 80,000 electrolytic capacitors and I kept maybe like a few hundred of them. And I started contacting places around town. Like, would you buy these from me? Uh, And then, and everywhere I contacted was like, no. And I was like, what if I give them to you? And they were like, no, I don't want them because, because they're electrolytic capacitors. They can't uh, do anything. So uh, yeah. It's it just was a bunch a, of e-waste. Yeah. It was a bad situation. So I had 80,000 capacitors that I had to do something with. I don't even remember what I did with them. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Regardless, multiple tangents back. So I've got this project I'm working on um, that I didn't design. Well, I've designed parts of the project, but I, I didn't design the, the whole thing. I purchased PCBs for this project in 2010, uh, and I have some, like, ancillary schematics and things like that from way back then, from forum post back then. And uh, this is a vacuum tube compressor, audio compressor, and one of the one of the, or two of the PCBs that go inside of this thing are DC heater uh, circuits. So they basically take uh, a tap from my transformer. I rectify it. I put it into these rec- uh, these regulators, and they regulate it down to the correct voltage for the vacuum tubes to run off. Of. Yeah,
1: vacuum tube heaters. So I got a question before you jump too much farther. Is what condition were the circuit boards in? Okay,
0: a few After of them were in were in great condition. They were just dusty. Uh, so I. I just washed them with alcohol and they look great these dc heater boards that i'm talking about here were actually they were oxidized really bad so i when i went to solder them like solder wasn't sticking to the pads i had, had to use actually, more flux i had to stop and clean the living bejesus out of them and then i just got out the ra flux because when you want to actually solder something you pull out ra flux you know <laughs> that stuff will eat through anything so, um, yeah, surprisingly, I was actually concerned about the boards because they were in... Um, what, what surface finish?
1: Were they Enig or Hassle?
0: Oh, they look like Hassle. I don't okay. know what it is, but given the time frame and given that this was just like a forum project, it, it's probably Hassle.
1: That's probably why they're
0: okay. But, but like I said, they oxidized really bad, um, which isn't necessarily in, an indicator of Hassle. Uh, That's true. Yep. They were they were in they just weren't in great shape. the The solder didn't want to stick to the pads. Let's just put it that way. So, but you know, a toothbrush with some ethanol and uh, some RA flux will fix anything. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, so here's the thing. There's two PCBs inside this circuit that uh, have four tubes each. Two of those tubes are have a have a, a load of 400 milliamps. And two of the tubes have a load of 900 milliamps. So I have two separate circuits that are 2.6 amps each. So mm-hmm. five point whatever, 5.2 amps total load on this. But I have two separate DC heater boards. So you can just consider it. Just think about one. So it's a 2.6 amp heater load on it at 6.3 volts. Um, so it's a pretty hefty amount of juice going through there just to heat these things up. So I've got my transformer that's cranking out some DC voltage and then I'm regulating down to that 6.3 volts, but at 2.6 amps going through this regulator, you could, you know, maybe the gears are turning in your head like it, that's a lot of heat. That's a lot Mm -hmm. of power to dissipate. So I actually took some measurements uh, of this. So we'll start out, I I actually have some calculations here because I wanted to, I wanted to kind of back calculate some stuff and um well let me just throw out some numbers and then and then we'll, we'll move forward so right off my rectifier i'm getting about 10 and 10.8 volts so that's my like input dc voltage 10.8 mm-hmm. and i want 6.3 volts out so my regulator has to drop that 10.8 down to 6.3 so that's a four and a half volt differential there so four and a half volt differential and my expected load is 2.6 amps. So the amount of heat that the regulator itself has to just chew is 4.5 volts times 2.6 amps. That's 11.7 watts in my regulator, which is not an insignificant amount of heat, right? That's that's a ton of power for a regulator. Uh, this regulator that I'm using is an LM338 which is, if you're, it's in a 20220 package, Mm. which is a, uh, you know, it's a pretty classic little regulator there. Um, And it's one of those adjustable type uh, where it has like a 1.25 volt reference. And then depending on the resistors on the output of it, you can adjust its output voltage, which on my boards, I have a little trim pot that I can do. Now, mind you, I didn't design these boards. Uh, And I'm not saying that because I would have done it differently, but i didn't design these boards i just populated them and i knew that there was going to be some heat there but i didn't go through the exercise of calculating it i was like i know these things are going to get hot so i'm i just bolted these transistors directly to my chassis i mean not directly i put a an insulating spacer on there but like a mica barrier yeah like a mica barrier and an insulating shoulder washer in the in the tab so they're electrically isolated but i could i thermally couple them I also put thermal paste on it because I knew that these things were going to get hot. But is the chassis itself enough of a heat sink to get rid of the power? That's sort of what I wanted to back calculate here. Because I can tell you right now, the answer is no, it's not. It's (laughs) not enough. (laughs) And, And because it's not enough, I thought I would go through the exercise of actually calculating. First of all, how much is it not enough? And then, how much do I need for it to be enough? And I, I did. So these calculations are. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna preface this right now by saying these calculations are a little bit rough. So deal with me on this, uh, or bear with me, I should say on this. Um, but they at least give like their ballpark numbers. Let's just put it that way. Um, so the thing is, I know I have about eleven and a half or eleven point seven watts that eventually needs to just go somewhere. It's super inefficient system. Uh, And and a TO, well, I'm sorry. Let me, let me back up real quick and just talk about how I tested this. So I guess you could just say I plugged it in uh, and saw what happened. Right. (laughs) No, no, no. So so here's the thing. Uh, Because I have vacuum tubes that I can pull out of their sockets, I can adjust the load. Right. I can, I can adjust the load by just plugging in or pulling it out. And I, I started adding tubes one at a time and checking my output voltage and adjusting my little trimmer to make sure that the regulator was was regulating. And, you know, at 400 milliamps, it was fine. At 800 milliamps, fine. I can, I can get the voltage I want. As soon as I put an additional 900 milliamps on it, the output voltage just drops. And then I put an additional 900 milliamp load on the output. It dropped yet again. And dropped as in, like, I'm turning my trim pot to adjust the regulator, and it's just like, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. It's not going and you're not, up.
1: And you're not supposed to do that, though.
0: Well, no, right. That's the whole point of a regulator, right? Yeah, it's supposed to yeah. adjust automatically for the load. So in looking at the circuit, like, there's nothing wrong with the circuit. It's it's functioning properly. Here's what's happened. I started dissipating too much heat, and I ran up against a thermal barrier inside the, re- uh, the regulator. The regulator... Uh, automatically adjusts its output such that it maintains a maximum heat inside mm-hmm. of the actual regulator, which <laughs> that's, that's not a good place to operate your regulators at. Uh, that's not their happy zone or anything like the, that. Did
1: you only realize this after like the, the powder coating on your chassis starts bubbling?
0: Hey, this is anodized aluminum. This isn't. <laughs> <cut>. <laughs> no, it okay. The melt. anodizing
1: starts discoloring. <laughs>
0: well okay so here's the thing once again this is a project from 20 2010 that's just like a forum thing where people are like i buy these boards they'll work for you but like there's no instructions on like oh you're gonna need a monster heat sink for these things or anything like that and like i said i just kind of like plugged them in to just try to give it a go kind of thing so Mm -hmm. i'm kind of laughing at i'm like a lot of these people that i see who were also building this wouldn't have even expected that you would have needed a heatsink at all. They would have just yeah. soldered the transistor to the board and been like, "Oh, it's good because the circuit says it's good." You know, yeah. Uh, they would have just bought it and soldered it. So, uh, yeah. I mean, whatever. But at least, hey, at least I get to have some fun with it. And and he- here's one of the one of the cool things about this. I have no idea in general what is the thermal dissipation. Of a plate of aluminum that has a particular thickness and it's anodized on one side. Like, would you even like? What would you even guess is the thermal dissipation of that? And I don't want to go and simulate that. And like, I have no clue how to calculate that. I didn't take that class in college. So, uh, this is a fun way to at least back calculate that and get a gut feel for what it, what it is, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, so check this out. Uh, A TO220 package component in general, doesn't matter what it is, has a thermal dissipation of about 70 degrees Celsius per watt. That is, like, if you're just starting from scratch in any design, that's a good number to use, 70 C per watt. So what that means is if the device itself is dissipating one watt, if you're asking it to dissipate one watt, you can expect its temperature to be 70 degrees Celsius above ambient. Ambient. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I think a lot of people get that wrong, especially when you like back to the Arduino crowd, like you were joking about earlier, like they're like, Oh, 7805. I'll just put that in and just start cranking a bunch of voltage from it, uh, or a bunch of current from it. And it gets really damn hot really fast because they put 18 volts on the input and they're asking an amp out of it, you know, uh, to regulate it down to five volts. Like you got to consider that that differential gets chewed up as heat. uh, Mm Um, In fact, i have, it's funny, the the day I kind of connected these dots, maybe it was a lot later than I should have, but uh, I'd also never really been asked this question before. I remember a mechanical engineer came up to me at my first job, and uh, he was asking about like power dissipation in, in our circuits. And he's like, I've taken a little bit of circuit classes and stuff, but i I kind of confused about something. He's like, you put voltage and current, into a device and that device consumes power. And he goes, where does that power go? What is that power? And like, I thought about it, I was like, well, some of it is useful, but like 99% of it just becomes heat, right? Yeah, it, it turns into entropy. Well, yeah, effectively. Yeah. You go to make, we, we as electrical engineers make lots and lots and lots of little space heaters. That's like the majority of our stuff. Right. But uh, like, I guess, I guess I knew that, but I never really connected the dots until he asked me and I was like, Oh yeah, almost all the power we put into our circuits is just heat on a small scale, but it's just, just heat. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unless you make the most efficient thing ever where 100% of your power goes to the thing you want it to. (laughs) Which, we're not there yet. Uh, So, okay, yeah. So, a TO220 dissipates about 70 degrees Celsius per watt. So, if I had just a TO220 that that was just on this board and I tried to have that TO220 by itself dissipate 11.7 watts, that's 11.7 times 70 above ambient... Effectively, you know, if we were in a simulation world, that would be eight hundred and forty-four degrees Celsius of is what I would be asking this little regulator to do. Uh, that ain't <laughs> happening, right? So so what's happening in my situation is as I'm adding load to it, I'm increasing the heat on this regulator, and the regulator is saying, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm not cool with that. So it's it's dropping the dropping output voltage it. until yeah. it's at its maximum thermal capability that the internal circuitry is allowing for. So with a 1.6 amp load, I pulled two of the tubes and I still have 1.6 amps on this. I saw that my output dropped from 6.3 volts down to five volts. So I could kind of back calculate based off of that differential that I know there. So 10.8 mm-hmm. minus five gives me 5.8 volts across the regulator. So that that meant a power of about 9.28 watts uh, uh, dissipating in the um, in the regulator and i also know that the regulator according to the data sheet has a maximum junction temperature of 125 degrees celsius so g- basically given those numbers what i could do is say that my ambient temperature is 25 volts it raised 100 volts to get to 125 so 100 100- Sorry, not 100 volts. 100 degrees Celsius. 100 degrees degrees Celsius divided by 9.28 gives me a thermal resistance of about 10.78 degrees Celsius per watt. That is what my aluminum was doing. So for every watt of juice that I was asking this regulator to do, the the temperature of the regulator itself would rise by 10, almost 11 degrees Celsius. That's a hell of a lot better than 70 degrees Celsius if the mm-hmm. regulator's just sitting there alone. So, the the thing that's cool about that is it at least gives me a gut feel for what aluminum would do. You know, like if I ever had to do this again, I could say like, oh, I can use 11 C per watt as just like a overall value. And in fact, I have a PCB that's arriving next week that I'm going to build up that also gets bolted to the chassis and it has much lower power needs, but I'm I'm kind of curious. I want to, I want to test its power and see if it also gets a value somewhere around 11 C per watt. Uh, so I got a thermal camera, or I borrowed a thermal camera the other day. I want to give it a shot. Turn this thing on, heat it up, see if that works. So so here's the thing: a 10 or a, we'll just go with 11. 11 degrees Celsius per watt is not enough for this circuit to run because I'm running into the thermal overload of this regulator. So back calculating around, what kind of heatsink would I need at bare minimum in order for this circuit to work? So I need to dissipate 11.7 watts. So if I just back calculate that 100 degrees C rise divided by Mm 11.7, I would need 8.54 Celsius per watt heatsink. So in other words, my... We've already found my chassis not enough to dissipate that much heat, but I went on to Amazon and I bought these big old chunky aluminum heat sinks. I'm showing the uh the slack channel here uh so I'm gonna drill and tap these and basically thermal paste and just stick these on the back of the of the chassis and see if I can get that down to the eight and a half Celsius per watt,
1: but those you can't go and go I need the eight c per watt. How do you spec that out?
0: Well, you just went on Amazon
1: and bought something.
0: I went on Amazon and bought something. I I did look through the comments and somebody actually had the thermal resistance of this. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was like five or six Celsius per watt. Okay. So this is pretty good. However, that would be if I bolted my transistors directly to this thing mm-hmm. i'm bolting them through a layer of aluminum and a spacer and
1: thermal grease so like it's worse than that right it was it what's gonna be interesting is i i did a lot of uh research for this you remember the reload pro oh yeah product that we did like yeah. those like products like two that we did at macrofab yep um anodized aluminum that anodizing layer is very thermally non-conductive Yep. like thermal does the, uh heat does not like to go through aluminum oxide
0: okay but heat loves to go through aluminum
1: not yes. the oxide yeah not the oxide yeah and so um i hate to say it, you scrape off that aluminum that oxide layer man i might have to i yeah. i'm gonna try it without and
0: just, yeah, I would try it without seeing if you can get there. Yeah. Here's the beautiful thing about heat sinks. Uh, so, when you, the, the kind of calculations I just went through to find what I need, first of all, that's what I need at a bare minimum to make sure that the regulator doesn't go into thermal shutdown. I need yeah, you should be well better than that to make sure that it doesn't go into thermal shutdown, right? This is yeah. purely the bare minimum. And that's also assuming that this thing is always in ambient temperature of 25 degrees Celsius, which it won't be, right? So I need probably 2X better than that, if not more than that. Uh, So that was just a fun, like, academic exercise to kind of, like, back-calculate. Sounds like
1: you should change that power supply out.
0: (laughs) I probably should, yeah, Um, or redesign one or just go with something else. Um, I'm just, I'm having fun with this, though. The, The beautiful thing about heat sinks is if you go to something like Mauser, Uh, or digikey, they have a search field that is their thermal resistance, basically. Or their dissipation. So you can just go and be like, oh, I need an 8.5 Celsius per watt, or better. And you just type that in, and and it'll show you everything of that.
1: I wonder how that's measured, because it's also dependent on contact area.
0: There are tons of standards around that. In fact, that's something else I wanted to bring up, uh, because there is is a big pitfall in datasheet for new people. Uh, If you go to look at uh, the uh, a data sheet for this LM338 regulator or pick any other part that's in a TO220, most of the time, and I don't mean some of the time, I mean most of the time, the the values that you see for their thermal dissipation are not what is reality. Uh, you have to dig deeper and you have to go to different documents to find it because if you look at the one that, that sort of dictates everything, which is theta JA, which is the... Thermal resistance between the junction to ambient, that tells you – that's that 70 value that I gave earlier, Mm -hmm. where for every watt, it rises by 70. If you go look at most data sheets for parts that are in 220s, it doesn't say 70. It says something like 23 or 24 or something like that. You have to look deeper and look in the notes because they test that to to some JDEX standard – and if you go read that standard, they're allowed to bolt it to a heatsink with a certain value, and then measure it at that point. So they give you this nice like, "Ooh, that value is great. That means that this part can can dissipate three watts of power." When in reality, it barely does one. Right. So mm-hmm. be really careful with all the thermal stuff because I've it's been my personal experience that they're bloated those numbers and they're nowhere near real. Um, so. Yeah, that's just something to watch out for. I chuckle every time I see that because like, it's on every damn data sheet for a TO220 part. I'm like, that is not real in any way. That is not real. <laughs> in fact, just for fun, I took this exact same power supply that it, it, it was handling 800 milliamp load fine. I got the voltage I want and everything. So I was like, okay, what happens if I just unbolt the, the regulator from the, from the chassis and just run it in free air? Yeah, free air. Uh, it got, like, the voltage was like 200 millivolts on the output. Like, it was trying so hard to do anything, and I was I was afraid of letting out the smoke. Uh, <laughs> because, like, I mean, I'm asking 800 millivolts across, I don't know, 10 volts or something like that. Uh, or, sorry, 800 milliamps. And it just, I mean, it just immediately went into thermal shutdown, like, from the second I turned it on. So... Uh, but if you, but if there was like a nice twenty degrees Celsius per watt value, like there was in the data sheet... Uh,
1: it would have been fine. It would have
0: been, yeah, it would have been a lot better. So, just watch out for that. So, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to. In fact, later tonight, I'm hoping to just drill and tap these uh, one of these heat sinks, plug it in, and just see if it's good enough. I don't know. It's kind of fun. Actually, it's 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 interesting. I went to a. Um, an interview once at an engineering firm and uh, they had, they did some really impressive system level design, some really big stuff. And I remember asking them in there, I was like, Oh, this is great. How do you guys handle your thermal stuff? Do you guys go and calculate or are you doing like 3d models and like, you know, everything. And they're like, Oh uh, yeah, no. And, and their solution was like, we turn it on and see if it gets hot. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, uh, okay, cool. Like, it's It's interesting they add they'll they'll do things like add a fan or whatnot if it just gets hot so they they design it so they could do that, maybe not even <laughs> maybe like maybe they it's all afterthought in that sense i That'd thermal stuff is weird yeah. uh because like do you think about it at the beginning stages? I guess it depends on your industry it, it depends on what you're doing
1: on Pinotar, yeah, that, I was thinking about it when I was designing it, yeah, sure. I mean i think I think, but there's not a lot of thermal stuff on the pinatar, so
0: i I have a product that I'm designing at work that's just it gets ridiculously hot i I've got too much analog, let's just put it that way, running on high voltage rails that don't need to be high voltage rails, and that's this is sort of the magic of switch mode power supplies because for a little bit of heat uh currency that you pay in you can shift voltages without just dumping that as heat that's sort of one of the magic magical things about switch mode power supplies is you don't need a transformer to switch things over
1: so kc8apf that's a that's a username uh, on the uh twitch chat says he's or she is currently working with a heatsink vendor to design a solution for a 400 watt asic Whoa. So, they're doing a lot of simulations.
0: That's cool. God, I'd love to see some of those simulations. That'd be fun. Yeah,
1: that'd be a lot pretty cool to see. So, so people do do the simulations. It's just that one well, company you were interviewing with was not. Well, okay. So, yeah, but,
0: but in that particular situation, if you've got one individual part that's cranking out 400 watts, then, uh, then, I think you're just—you uh, pretty much have to, right? You don't have a choice. You can't ignore it. Uh, this other company had—I think they told me 13 individual PCBs inside of a system, a large system enclosure, and they—they they had different teams design each uh, board, and then they brought them all together. And in testing, they found out if they needed heat or uh, needed thermal management or not ah parker you turned into robot man <laughs> it might just be on my side ah, okay so yeah it must be it must be for everyone seems like <laughs> seems like this the the chat's here in it too do you need me to oh you want me to uh, close out the podcast Okay. I see how it goes. Well, okay. Thanks for uh, joining us, everyone, in the Slack chat. We appreciate you being here each week. Uh, So with that, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host and Stephen Craig. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you had a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at Macrofab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find us at Macrofab.com slash Slack.